Listener Production. The sweet sound of a constant horn beeping. Oh, man. That is annoying, to say the least. And that is the sound that people living in the Canadian city of Ottawa have had to deal with every day for almost two weeks now. Not just four seconds like we did. No. (laughs) And that's because a convoy of truckers have set up tents and they've blocked major roads in the country's capital. We just request that the Prime Minister comes out and talk to us. This convoy's for everyone. It can't express enough. This is about your rights as a human being. We are therefore calling on all levels of government in Canada to end all COVID mandates and restrictions. We will continue our protest until we see a clear plan for their elimination. So there are some of their concerns. They call themselves the Freedom Convoy and they were sparked by the introduction of a new rule that all truckers in Canada must be vaccinated to cross the border with the US. But as you can hear, it's now become much broader than that. This week, the city declared a state of emergency. Here's Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. The situation at this point is completely out of control. Clearly, we're outnumbered. We're losing this battle right now. We have to get our city back. So, in this episode of The Briefing, what is going on there in Canada and how does this story end? People are angry. They're tired. The pandemic's been long. They don't like the government. They don't like being told what to do. So, it's attracted a lot of people who have a cause, but then it's also attracted people who are, you know, their cause might just be messing things up or anarchy. That is coming up in just a sec, but first the headlines for Friday the 11th of February. And what a difference a day makes. There's been a very big twist in the religious discrimination bill story. So this time yesterday, if you were listening to the podcast... We were talking about the bill getting through to the House of Reps, but they didn't put it to a vote in the Senate. They actually shelved it until after the election. This is a bill that I earnestly hoped would unite this place. Well, it really divided that place that Scott Morrison speaking in Parliament. So the Religious Freedom Bill passed the lower house at 4am yesterday morning with amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act to protect transgender students. Now, that only happened because of five Liberal MPs crossing the floor and voting with Labor. And then we were thinking it would go to the Senate and potentially pass there and everyone would sort of, I guess, get their own version of what they thought was the right outcome here. But it didn't happen. Uh, You had Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg saying he'd also cross the floor in the Senate if his coalition colleagues there tried to wind back those protections to transgender students. I would have ensured that uh, vulnerable transgender children were protected. Then the bill was effectively pulled with the government saying that the changes to the Sex Discrimination Act had gone too far and that they needed to be reviewed because of potential unintended consequences. Yeah, so that will take a long time and there's only two sitting days in the Senate left before the election, which is expected in May. That decision to pull the legislation was actually supported by the Australian Christian Lobby They don't support the bill anymore if it includes those amendments. I think it doesn't um, deserve fighting for, to be honest, because I think it's fatally flawed. That's Wendy Francis from the Australian Christian Lobby speaking to the ABC. So this has been a total mess. Um, It was first promised before the 2019 election by Scott Morrison, and he used it as a way of getting support from religious communities in the 2019 um, so-called miracle election, but he hasn't been able to get it through. It's been a very divisive debate, which is basically 
ended up with nothing. No legislation's been passed after all those years. And then there was also a leak to The Australian, um, which was published yesterday, saying that Scott Morrison had tried to convince his own cabinet to do a deal with Labor where they brought on the Integrity Commission legislation as a way of bringing Labor on side with the Religious Discrimination Bill. And his own cabinet ministers said, no, we don't want to do that. So he hasn't been able to win over his own cabinet on that. And he hasn't been able to win over his own backbench with five of them crossing the floor. And he hasn't been able to win over the Australian Christian lobby, which would have otherwise been a big supporter of this bill as well. They still support him because he has, in their eyes, tried to stand up for them, but it hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah, not in this particular case, that's for sure. And we are waking up to fresh changes as well on the definition of fully vaccinated. Um, We're not even actually calling it fully vaccinated anymore. The correct terminology now is up-to-date Um, And Atagi says that if you are up to date with vaccines, it means that you have had three jabs, and that is for anyone over the age of 16. What's really clever is they've gone from this uh, definition of fully vaccinated to up to date being something that can actually be uh, changed over time and adjusted as uh, we move along with the pandemic. So that's Dr Chris Moyer, who's the Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, um, supporting that move. So if it's been longer than six months since your last vaccine, at the moment that's a second vaccine, then you're considered overdue for the booster. And the new advice was endorsed by the National Cabinet yesterday afternoon, but it won't apply to international travellers arriving in Australia. And I guess we're yet to see whether this um, applies to the vaccine mandates as well, which I think could be a very controversial thing. Yeah, well, Federal Cabinet says that they will mandate three jabs, but only for healthcare. But it is up to the states to develop their own plan and we are going to be going into winter, so each of the states will be doing that as they see fit. 37.1% of eligible Australians over 12 are currently Mm. up to date. That's the correct terminology, which is, you know, that's not a very high number. And the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is in Melbourne to meet leaders from Australia, Japan and India And the aim of the Quad meeting is to shore up Indo-Pacific partnerships to counter China's growing power. The Quad fundamentally is about um, presenting an affirmative vision and affirmative action to deal with some of the main challenges of our time as well as to find uh, opportunities and to make the most of them. That was Anthony Blinken um, speaking to 7.30 on the ABC there. Of course, he's the US Secretary of State. Um, Vaccine distribution, cyber and critical technology, countering malicious disinformation, counter-terrorism, security, climate change. All of these massive topics are going to be on the agenda when they meet later today. As will the crisis in Ukraine, which continues to deepen with the Russian military now within striking distance of the capital, Kiev. Sportsbet's been fined $3.7 million for breaking spam laws. Finally, some of these spammers are getting done. Um, It sent 150,000 text messages and emails to customers who had tried to unsubscribe. How annoying is that? Mm. You know, to get sent a spam message is annoying, but to get sent one when you have deliberately gone in to try and unsubscribe, that is very annoying. So this is the biggest penalty to date for breaking spam laws. Yeah, that's right. It sits at $2.5 That's the fine that they have to pay. But there is a remaining $1.2 million that they will also pay that is going to be made up of refunds that they have agreed to pay to customers um, who've lost bets after receiving that kind of unwanted marketing message. Yeah, so this comes after a gambling and suicide prevention report yesterday 
the call for a complete ban on gambling advertising. The report also pointed out the danger of these companies mining personal data to target vulnerable individuals. And doping in the Russian Olympic team? No. No, I haven't heard of those two things going together, have you? Why would you put those two things together? (laughs) We'll explain why in just a sec. But firstly, one of Russia's star figure status, 15-year-old Camila Valova, has tested positive for a banned drug. We had a situation arrive at at short notice, um, has legal implications. Yes, that was Mike Adams there from the International Olympic Committee. Now, Russia had won the team figure skating event, but the medal ceremony was postponed because of an unspecified last-minute, quote-unquote, legal consultation. So Valovar tested positive for a drug used to treat angina, which is a type of chest pain caused by reduced blood flow to the heart. Now, it was the same drug that Chinese swimmer Sun Yang served a ban for in 2014. Yeah, there is a bit of a background to all of this, though, because Russia is still actually banned from the Games because of previous doping breaches. Isn't that right? Yeah. So the Russian athletes at the Games that you're seeing are actually competing under a different banner, the the ROC or Russian Olympic Committee, which means that if they won that gold medal or, you know, were awarded it, they would have stood there to a Tchaikovsky concerto, not the Russian national anthem, and they also can't have the Russian flag on their uniforms. Yeah. And better further background, that is a ban that comes after many, many years of revelations of you know, very widespread drug use among Russian athletes. So there's been 46 Olympic medals that have been stripped from Russian athletes due to doping violations. That's why we put the doping and the Russian... What's another um, medal being stripped on top of that tally? Yeah, make it 47. Why not? I think all countries should be able to choose the music that they win gold to. If Russia gets <laughs> Tchaikovsky, we should get, I don't know... ACDC? Jimmy Barnes or something. <laughs> well, speaking of Jimmy Barnes, a few truckies in Canada, well... The Aussie truckies listen to it. I don't know about in Canada, but that's where we're going next, finding out what they're doing in Ottawa. It's a long bow. Let's go there. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. So that's Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the trucker protests that have seen uh, up towards a thousand trucks dug in on Ottawa streets and also blocking a crucial border crossing um, near the US city of Detroit and inspired similar but a little bit lamer protests in Canberra. That's right. Well, to get a clearer picture of exactly what is going on in Ottawa, we're joined by Elizabeth Payne. She is a journalist with the Ottawa Sun and she's on the ground in Ottawa now. Elizabeth Payne, thanks for joining us here on The Briefing. I mean, we heard a few seconds of the horns, but you guys have been hearing them for two weeks. What's that like? Well, I was just in the area of the protest this morning, and it's actually quiet because uh, there was an injunction that went through court earlier this week brought by a 21-year-old resident of the area to order them to stop honking, something many people suggest police might have done earlier. So it's largely quiet except for the pretty loud sound of large trucks that have been idling constantly since this started and the smell of diesel fuel everywhere. But yes, the horn noise has mercifully stopped. So how much was this affecting residents? Because it's been going on for almost two weeks now in the capital. How have residents been affected? 
Well, in many ways. I mean, you know, this is a big city geographically, and this is centered around the parliament buildings, but a lot of people live in that area. Noise is the first thing. The injunction in court sort of listed the level at which people start to have hearing damage, and this was at least double that, and it was constantly. So people weren't sleeping. They could, you know, many people are working at home. They couldn't work. I have neighbors who have taken in literally refugees from that part of the city because they can't live there anymore. And beyond the noise, which, you know, is insidious and drives people to distraction, really, there's also the... The fear, because I mean, I was down there today, I'm talking to lots of, you know, farmers who came from out west in Canada, people who are, who genuinely feel strongly about this cause. But then there's this, this other element around the outside of it. I mean, there's a lot of racism on signs, there's been assaults, people hassled for wearing masks who live there. So people who live in that area became afraid to go out. So this protest, uh, my understanding is, started with truckers who were protesting against vaccine mandates in the trucking industry. But from what you're saying, it seems to now have become much bigger than that. Why do you think that is? I think it is largely about mandates, but in all that represents. People are angry, they're tired, the pandemic's been long, they don't like the government. They don't like being told what to do. So it's attracted a lot of people who have a cause, but then it's also attracted people who are, you know, their cause might just be messing things up or anarchy. That is the issue with this. There's a lot of stuff along the outside of this protest that makes it dangerous and a lot more problematic. Yeah, well, the pandemics created the conditions that are almost perfect for this online conspiratorial movement. Um, Lots of people stuck at home, but also a real culmination of causes ranging from, you know, anti-vaxxers through to general distrust and, you know, conspiratorial views about government control. How much has that played out on the streets here? Because, you know, previous decades, these online conspiratorial groups have stayed online, but the pandemic seems to have brought them out into the real world. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. The people who are quite reasonable and will talk to you will say they don't want their grandchildren to be raised in a communist state, which, you know, is hard to get them to give you a direct point A to point B <laughs> explanation of what, they, what they're talking about. But, you know, we don't want people telling us what to put into our bodies. I think one of the interesting and I guess in the post-mortem of this will be looking at where the money for this came from. And initially, within a matter of days, $10 million was raised and a lot of it came from the U.S. So who's funding it and why? I mean, there's there's a guy who's now one of their health experts who was in the Trump administration There's southern states in the U.S. where they're concerned that GoFundMe actually froze the money because they didn't like what they saw was happening with it. You're right. I mean, you've got conspiracies. You've got people who are fed up and frustrated, which is the case all around the world. And it all just kind of melds together and it can become quite dangerous. It can become a real force. So I guess I'm just trying to gauge the scale of these protesters in relation to Canada and Canadians. It's very interesting that you talk about some of the funding possibly coming from the US. In terms of Canada, though, the percentage of um, vax rates is pretty high. Truckers are almost 90% vaccinated. So how different 
are the views of these protesters compared to the rest of Canadian society? There's probably a grey area where some people would agree. I think this might be bleeding more into mainstream society that, in fact, maybe the governments have gone too far. Maybe they have unnecessarily pointed to people who aren't vaccinated as the problem. So I think there might be a more mainstream sentiment that that's not a great thing. In this city, you you know, we're the capital. It's a city we're used to protests, of course. So arguably, that might be what happened here. Policing has been abysmal, but there's strong feelings that people have a right to protest. That's why we're here. And the police allow that, of course. But this one is so different. This is a city where if generally, if someone asks you not to do something, you don't do it. So I think people who are just flagrantly defying all the rules around here are kind of shocking to people as much as their views on things are. That This is very much fed from the U.S. idea of um, individual rights, um, not so much responsibility, but freedom is the buzzword everyone uses. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty Tea Party Trumpian. How crazy has it got? We heard that people were bringing in saunas into the protest. I mean, what what are the scenes that you've witnessed? And, and jumping castles for kids as well. Yes. That's another thing yes. I read about. And, and, and has the mayhem peaked or is it still building? I'm hoping it's peaked. So what's happened is it started about two weeks ago. They came in for this protest that was to be on a Saturday and it was big and people didn't know what to expect. And then the thinking might have been originally that they would go home after the weekend. And then, you know, it became clear that they weren't going home. And so the second weekend became even bigger, where not only are the people who are dug in and have their trucks parked, blocking off all parts of the city, but then all these supporters come flying into town. And that tends to be where the trouble starts, to be honest. So, yeah, last weekend, I'd say was the peak. (laughs) You never know, but Mm. there were bouncy castles, as we call them here for kids. It was like a carnival, but a kind of weird dystopian might be going too far, but really sort of off-key version of one. There's families, they're all carrying Canadian flags, but most of the flags also say F. Trudeau. There's also like Confederate flags and don't tread on me flags and people have seen swastikas around. Mm. So it's this weird mix of this sort of family festivity, although mine then, and then there were horns honking all the time. So it was, it was ear splitting, diesel fumes everywhere, people sort of out to have a family day and these weird elements around them. And then there were counter protests And then this whole sauna thing, just to add to the complete absurdity of it, there's a parking lot sort of out of the downtown where police tried to get some of the traffic out of the city. So said they could use that. It became this like they're highly, highly organized. I mean, they really could help organize some things around here at other times, but set up this staging ground for fuel and brought in saunas and hot tubs, which for people there had like entire soup kitchens built in parks and set, built a shack, you know, just in a matter of hours along the uh, World Heritage, UNESCO Heritage site, Rideau Canal in town. It is not a happy scene in the city by any means. So how does this particular protest end, Elizabeth? Does it just dissipate? Do people just get a bit sick and tired of being there? Does Trudeau get the army in? I mean, the city's in a state of emergency at the moment. So how do they break this impasse? 
Well, it's a really good question. People have trickled out, but most of them say, why would I leave? We're not going anywhere. They've been unsuccessful really trying to choke off diesel supplies to them. So the city has pleaded for help from the provincial government. I mean, this is a city police force that's running this national situation and not doing a great job of it. So does the military come in? No one really seems to want that except local councillors who say, you know, get them out of here. I'd say the one thing that is possible is that this is a movement that seems to be gaining steam across the country. So they might go elsewhere. There was talk they would head to Toronto, which, you know, is mm. the bigger city in the province. So uh, that could be how it ends. Potentially, but, it follows the, the Omicron wave, which is also coming down quite quickly in Canada. And with that, restrictions start to get eased. So the real cause for their concerns starts to actually disappear, which I guess will test out what they're really there for. We're a country of 10 provinces and territories and two, three, maybe four provinces as of this week have said, that's it. We're getting rid of all our restrictions. And in a way, they might be delaying some of that in the most populous provinces because you can't really be seen just to lift them when you're you're occupied by a force of truckers demanding you do so. So in a way, it's an awkward situation. Yes, the Omicron wave is um, receding and likely we're heading in the next number of weeks to reducing or getting rid of mandates. I think the problem is it might take longer to get rid of them just because the optics of doing so while these truckers are here. That was Elizabeth Payne speaking to us from Ottawa. She's a reporter at the Ottawa Sun. And the situation is changing around these protests, as I guess I was getting at with that last question, Jan, that Omicron's going down massively. The restrictions are ending. So is there any reason why these people are still going to be on the streets in days or weeks? You reckon it might naturally sort of dissipate in the same way that that's possibly happening around the world? Well, they certainly lose their real reason for being on the streets. And then it, it may be the people who are left are the nutbags. Well, what's been interesting listening to Elizabeth talk is hearing how much influence the sort of US culture war has filtered through to Canada and that idea of freedom and individual Mm. responsibility. It's very Um, broad, isn't it? It's very broad. And those are sort of evergreen topics, aren't they? They Mm. can rear their head in any situation. So yeah, these protests might dissipate in the next few days or weeks. But those sort of culture war issues, I think, will rage on for a bit longer. Yeah. Often they stay in the media or online, though. And I think as we touched on there as well, the pandemic has allowed them to sort of join multiple causes together and actually come out onto the streets in the real world. So that's a new dynamic we've seen recently, that connection between online conspiracy and the real world. So where that goes... Mm-hmm, that's the could, question. You could almost tie that into the capital riots last year mm-hmm. as well. Um, where does that go? Well, we'll be watching that one closely for a very long time. All right, that is it for the weekday briefing. Jamila... Who have you got on for the weekend briefing? This weekend, I am chatting with Lisa Wilkinson, who has to be one of the most best-known Australian television presenters. She has been in and around the Aussie media scene for so long. She was editor, editor as in the boss, of Dolly magazine at just 21 years old. But unlike a lot of the Aussie media stars, she didn't have a privileged, rich upbringing. She's a girl from Campbelltown High, and it was a real pleasure to sit down with her and get the insight on Lisa Wilkinson's life. Lisa Wilkinson on The Briefing tomorrow in your feed at 6am. We'll be back Monday. Hope you have a great weekend. 
listener.